Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Audrey Hepburn once said, and... It's a quote I admit I've been repeating just a few million times. Paris is always a good idea, and I wholeheartedly agree. So, welcome to our Paris podcast with our good friend from the New York Times, Elaine Shalino, who's written a number of great books about the city, including her most recent, A Fascinating History of the River That Made Paris, the Seine. Elaine joins me to talk about the new invasion of Paris by Americans, attracted in no small part to the power of the dollar over the euro as well as her favorite lesser-known museums. Then Alexander Lebrano is always a good idea as well. He's my go-to guy whenever I head to Paris. He's the author of My Place at the Table and Hungry for France. And as those titles might suggest, he knows not only where to go, but when and, of course, what to order. And finally, and no real connection to Paris, but because it's news and I had the chance to speak to him, I'll sit down with Stephen Scherer, the CEO of Hertz, to talk about the changing dynamics of the entire rental car world, the emergence of e-vehicles, and why Hertz just wrote a check for $168 million to settle claims by some renters who were falsely arrested and in some cases even jailed. First up, Elaine Shalino. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Elaine Shalino, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's always so nice to see you, Peter. And likewise. I mean, when we were correspondents for Newsweek, we were literally on airplanes, trains, buses, I mean, you name it, covering all the breaking stories. And, uh, and then you got smart and moved to Paris, and, uh, and the rest is history. But I don't come to Paris without talking to you. So I guess the first question is, am I delusional or is Paris completely have been invaded? Has it been invaded by Americans now? You're not delusional. Every American who did not come to Paris in May decided to come. Just to give you an example, for a two-week period in October, I had nine sets of family, friends, or friends of friends. And I liked all of them, so I had to see all of them, (laughs) uh, which is quite extraordinary. I had quite a busy social life being a tour guide, uh, uh, supreme, supreme uh, here in in Paris. But the thing is, as long as the dollar is as strong as it is against the euro, they're still coming. That's right. The dollar is at a 20-year high. It's great for Americans. And the weather is unbelievably good, too. So it's, it's really pretty good. So let's talk about, you know, I always get my advice from you. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, it's the Audrey Hepburn line, you know, that it's, Paris is always a good idea. And it is. Uh, but you have to know what you're doing. Yes, it's do not take a taxi because the travel uh, restrictions now in Paris are such that the um, it's the, the, the speed limit is something like 20 miles an hour. So it means that many taxi drivers after COVID decided to just quit and not um, drive a taxi anymore. So there are fewer taxis and uh, it can take you uh, an hour to get someplace where it used to take you a half an hour. Okay, that's rule number one. That's rule number one. Rule number two, watch for bicyclists and electric scooters. because Especially the electric scooters. Yeah, because they love going the wrong way on these roads. And some of the roads are are set out so that you can go the wrong way from the traffic. And it, it kind of is like if you've ever been in London as an American and you have to look both ways, it's like that in Paris now. You have to look both ways because you're not going to get run over by a car. You're going to get run over by an electric scooter. Has that happened to you? I got hit by a bicyclist, yeah, ended up on the ground, but didn't end up in the hospital, thank the Lord. But uh, yeah, we had quite a an argument, this uh, bicyclist and I, because he was going the wrong way on the street. Of course. And you cursed him out in both English and French, did you? I started thinking in English, but I cursed him out in French, yeah. <laughs> All right, so other than just basic logistics, I mean, every... If you, go, if you go up Madison Avenue in New York right now, still, even though we so-called emerged from the pandemic, every third storefront is vacant. Um, and a lot of those places, including restaurants, have not come back and will not come back. Did the same thing happen in Paris? 
The same thing didn't happen in Paris because there was such an incredible social safety net and the government poured huge amounts of money into restaurants, small shops, small independent entrepreneurs, uh, you know, independent actors and dancers and whatever, so that you see some shops empty, but not at all like what you see in New York. So they're still around? They're still around. Small merchants are still around. It's, it's still terrific. Now, the last book you wrote, the Seine, the the, made, the the river that made Paris, the Seine is still here. The Baton Mouche are still here. The Seine is still here. The Seine's going to be a star in 2024 with the Olympics because they're going to start the Olympics on the Seine. What are they going to do? They're going to have a huge parade uh, all along the uh, the Seine, and they're making the Seine swimmable by 2024. So oh, that, let's um, talk about that for a second. <laughs> Because when you did the book, did you ever get in the Seine? Of course I did. I swam. I didn't swim in Paris, I, but I did swim, um, you know, closer to the source of the Seine. Yeah, absolutely. I got in. So, yeah. you're, so you're telling me. I am not a Seine virgin. I swam in the Seine. <laughs> but you're telling me that by in the next two years, ready for the Olympics, people can jump in? Well, Anne Hidalgo, who's the current mayor of Paris, did a whole demonstration about how clean the Seine was uh, when she uh, announced that the... Um, Paris was going to do a big deal with the Seine, and she constructed a, a huge, huge diving board and had Olympic divers dive into the Seine, even even back then. This was a couple of years ago. And um, they came out, and they, they, they lived to tell the story. They so were, they're not glowing in the dark. They were kind of full of muck, but one as one of them said, you know, with a good shower of about 20 minutes, really hot water, I'll be okay. <laughs> I can't wait to see what happens. It's, you know, it's, when you think about the history of the Olympics— um, and even the last 40 or 50 years, it's an excuse for cities to clean up their act. Yes, absolutely. And But Paris doesn't really need to clean up the part that's going to be featured uh, in uh uh, in 2024, but but there are parts of Paris that will will be changing and will be building and 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 will be cleaning up. So, has the Seine changed at all since you wrote the book? Well, the Seine has become the hot place to be because what uh, the mayor of Paris did is she closed off some of the car routes along the Seine and that's turned them into restaurants and and boats that now have restaurants and bars and so it's it's become a playground uh, along the Seine you know for running for biking for uh, dining for getting drunk <laughs> for getting drunk absolutely every night along the Seine you see lots of young people c- celebrating and drinking and singing and dancing and you if you're not careful you'll get pickpocketed so okay so there's another piece of advice about yes. bicycling and pickpocketing yeah, pickpocketing is still a big, big sport in Paris, especially on the metro. You got to be really, really careful. And believe it or not, you got to be really careful near the Tour Eiffel because they love to pickpocket over there. Uh, they have gangs. When I say they work in pairs, because pickpocketing is essentially a crime of distraction, and you're not paying attention, you're going to lose something. Well, on the metro, they have announcements about getting pickpocketed and how you have to watch yourself. And you can be really tough and really strong. I have a colleague, an ex-foreign correspondent, war correspondent, and a uh, big guy, and he got pickpocketed and lost all his money and his passport uh, and his ID. In one, in one event? In one event, and this was a guy who ate nails for breakfast. Wow. Mm. But the Eiffel Tower is still there. Uh, the history is still there. Uh, and Jules Verne is still there, right? The restaurant. 
Yes, this is true, although it would not be my, one of my favorite restaurants to go to. I want to write a story, Peter, about um, how to eat badly in Paris for a lot of money. And <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah, I, I would yeah, read that yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to be really careful these days where you go to dine in Paris. Right. and But I have to say, in the, uh, just in my experience, I haven't had a bad meal in, in Paris in a long time. Yeah, but you were the guy who introduced me to McDonald's. I had never been inside a McDonald's <laughs> before in my life before I met you. And so that's your standard for what good food well, is. Well, wait a second. That goes back how many years? I don't care. I mean, I'm telling you, if that's your standard about how we should eat, uh, that's, that's not a very okay, high one. In full disclosure, let me give you the context of that story. <laughs> you and I were working on the cover story for Newsweek on Gary Gilmore, the first man to be executed in the United States in, in, in over two decades. And uh, there we were in Salt Lake City, not known for its cuisine, I might add, in those days. That was before the Winter Olympics in 2002. This is back in the 70s. And... Uh, Yes, I was uh, I was on the on the Big Mac trail there because I, I had few options. It should also be said that I have not been to a McDonald's since two thousand and six. So there you go. They still have good French fries. They in, do in Paris and at the McDonald's in Paris. The, yeah. So we know the Americans have invaded. We know that. Uh, I mean, it's true. The hotels are running at about ninety percent occupancy. Really? Oh, oh they are. Uh, and it's but it's a fun time to be in Paris. If you want to go shopping. It's a fun time to be in Paris, too, because of what's happening culturally in this city. Uh, I'm very excited because I have my new favorite museum, which is the old, original National Library of Paris. It's not the one over in, across the river from where, where we are, in uh, on the left bank, the big, huge, tall building that's an ap- absolute nightmare. It's the old Bibliothèque Nationale that dates from the 18th century, not too far from the Louvre. And um, it is after 12 years and gazillion dollars worth of renovations, it is reopened. And you know how when you come to Paris and you're always thinking, where can I just rest for a little while? You can go into this library and see one of the most beautiful rooms in Paris for contemplation, their reading room. And it's free, and you don't need to get a ticket, and you can use the toilet, which is also something good to know when you come to Paris. <laughs> and on the second floor, they have the most terrific small museum. You pay your money, you pay your 10 euros, and you go into this museum. And for anybody who loves literature, you can go in and see the original manuscripts of Casanova and Proust and Simone de Beauvoir. You can see a Gutenberg Bible. You can see... Um, Mozart's Don Giovanni and how he didn't make any corrections when when he 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 wrote all of his musical notes, and it's really fun. Uh, you, you know, the the Bibliothèque Nationale or the National Library has more antique Greek vases than any place in France than the Louvre. So you don't even have to go to the Louvre if you want to go see Greek vases. You can go to this wonderful little place where there aren't the same crowds. Well, now that you brought up the subject of the Louvre, let's deal with that. The Americans are all over the Louvre. Would you like to find a line to stand in? Go to the Louvre. Well. Yeah. I'm writing a book right now that's going to be called something like How to Fall in Love with the Louvre. 
because the Louvre, which was built as a fortress before it became a palace, before it became a museum, is still a fortress. It is still an impossible building to maneuver. It's the biggest museum in the world. And unless you're really prepared, like going into battle, you will be disappointed, angry, frustrated. Uh, And so you've got to be armed for the day. I mean, I always like to joke that Americans for the first time are determined they're going to go to the Louvre, they're going to stand in line, and they're going to come out about three or four hours later going, it's so small, meaning the Mona Lisa. Correct. All right. But there's so much more to the Louvre than the Mona Lisa. Well, it's one of those things you have to check off your list. You know, you have to check off that you've actually seen this one painting. The problem is to see it the way you see it in this in crowded room with hundreds of other people is not the best way to see it. Uh, but Is there a best way to see it? The real thing? Yeah. No. No, no, there isn't. You have to um, see the fake things. You go to the side of the rooms and they have like a little show and tell and now they show you that you can look at the Mona Lisa and see all the little parts of her face that are, are, are good or bad. There are... Uh, Mona Lisa's online and you can zoom in and you can see like where there was a little crack in the in the in the um, in the wooden uh, poplar uh, uh, base it's not a canvas it's a you know he, he painted on wood uh, you can read uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, probably 800 page biography of Leonardo and learn about uh, the Mona Lisa you can go to Marseille where they were having a um, an immersive Mona Lisa but to see the real thing it's one of those it's one of those things in life you have to do like you if you go to the Vatican you have to go to see the Sistine Chapel you know if you go to New York you've got to go see the Statue of Liberty you just you know you have to do it and the interesting thing, about the Mona Lisa, if you do the history of it, is when it got stolen. Yeah, well, that helped to make it famous, too, because it got stolen by an Italian who thought it should have been in, in Italy. And, uh, but who did they suspect of stealing it? That's the best story of all. Oh, well, they Picasso. suspected Picasso, but that was that lasted for about five minutes. And he loved the Louvre, by the way. I mean, I used to laugh. That he, they, thought he stole the, they, they thought he stole the Mona Lisa. Well... Yeah, but they thought a lot of people stole the Mona Lisa. That 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 that's sort of a side story. There's all sorts sorts of other stories about the Mona Lisa that we can write about. There's all sorts of stories. You know, let's not talk about the Mona Lisa. Let's talk about the other Leonardos that are in the Louvre. You know, go see the Mona Lisa. Three minutes and just go. go and right. and then leave that room with all the Italian paintings, and and go up the, to the next floor and go look at French paintings and go have a blast looking at some of the most extraordinary paintings that you've ever seen in your life. And there are so few people up there. See, that's the deal. That's the deal. The, the secret to visiting the Louvre, and I'm going to write about this in, the, in this book, is to find places where there are no Americans and there are no vis- <laughs> and there are no, where there are no tour groups. You know, there are no tourists. And... Um, there are those places. I mean, for example, the Islam wing, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's really fun. You get inspired. You walk through. There are very few people. You find a park bench, you know, a little bench that looks like a park bench, and you can sit and you can just look at beautiful tile work or beautiful um, bronze filigree and and just think ah the world is a nice place the world is a good place today and then my plan b musee d'orsay 
Oh, the Musée d'Orsay right now has an extraordinary exhibit uh, that I, I wrote about for the New York Times uh, on Rosa Bonheur, who was um, a painter, was the most famous painter and richest painter in France in the 19th century. And she, um, she also lived with a woman for 40 years and then lived with another younger woman for some time. And uh, cut her hair short. She got police permission. She had to get a permit every six months to wear pants because she, if she didn't want to wear a dress, to go out and paint animals. She was the animal painter of the 19th century. So she went out and painted horses and cows and went through the muck and and mud and and uh, 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 the. Um, waste of the animals and uh, she even made friends with buffalo bill when he came to paris and you can go visit her house that's not far from fontainebleau uh and you it's really sort of like a chateau it's in between a house and a chateau or you can go and see this extraordinary exhibit uh, at the orsay what's interesting to me about the, the museum d'Orsay, of course it's a former train station yes this and is which true. means like all french train stations at least the ones that i've experienced it's the light in that museum coming in from above. Well, also, the restaurant that's there is not a terrible place to have lunch. Not bad. Not bad. But most people, okay, I'll take Elaine's advice, stand in line, go to the Louvre, check out the Mona Lisa, give yourself about three minutes and 20 seconds, and then explore the rest of the museum. Absolutely. Is there another secret museum for you here in town other than the, the bibliotheque? Well, I like to have guests when they come to visit to go see the Musée Nissim Caimondo over near the Parc Monceau because it is not only an extraordinary house that belonged to the Caimondo family preserved in time, but it tells the whole story of this family. Uh, this family was uh, a Jewish-Turkish family, industrialist bankers, uh, who, who were totally assimilated into French life. Uh, one of the uh, Caimondos was, was killed in uh, World War I fighting for the French. And then in World War II, the family thought that since they were so, uh, family members thought since they were so integrated, they were protected and they were completely eliminated in the Second World War. But they had already donated the house to the French government. And so it's an extraordinary story, not only because you see the way the family lived in this particular point in time, but you mourn their passing and you, you learn something about French history and how complicated it's been. And you know what? No lines. And no lines. <laughs> exactly. And a lovely little restaurant on the side where you can sit and contemplate what you've just seen. My thanks to Elaine. Whenever I come to Paris, one of my first calls is to Alexander Lebrano. Over the years, he's turned me on to some of the best dining experiences of my life. And we're not just talking Michelin three-star restaurants. Instead, the restaurants and the chefs that only Alexander knows, in many cases, before they were famous. Memorable meals and memorable stories. And the stories always continue with Alexander. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. 
This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Welcome, Mr. Paris. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Greenberg. <laughs> How long have you been living here? 35 years. And they haven't found out. And <laughs> don't play with that. The crunch are not called bureaucrats for nothing. No, I'm a permanent resident. <laughs> <laughs> so when we look at the food scene, for this year, right? Let's go back a year mm-hmm. and talk about what your you know your top hit parade of of, of food experiences in Paris for 2022. Well, I'll tell you about. I'll tell you. I'll, let's start off with France, and I have a couple other places beyond that I yeah. like to mention. Um, it was a great year in Paris because the tourists came back, and uh, you know, I mean, Parisians. Some people think Parisians are a little gruff. Um, and a little impatient and whatever, whatever. But Parisians missed the tourists. I mean, that's, we did. We missed the tourists because tourists are part of the Parisian landscape. Um, and the people who really missed them, of course, were the hotel, hotelier and the restaurant owners. So to be in a restaurant where there was suddenly noise again, to hear cutlery on plates, to hear people laughing, to hear corks being pulled out of bottles, that soundtrack of joy was so great to hear all over the city again last year. And uh, well, I have to tell you, when I came back, and I'd come back a couple times during during you know twenty twenty one and twenty two, uh, I went back to my old favorites. Just, first of all, I want to make sure they're still there, mm-hmm. and second of all. I wanted to take my wife, who'd never been to those restaurants, to explain to her what I've been talking about all these years. And this is where Alexandra gets to laugh at me. But I'll tell you where I went, right? I wanted to take her to a traditional brasserie. Right. So I took her to Brasserie Lip. What? Well, th- where else would you go? Well, I mean, you mean you're, you're letting... No, you're, I th- th- no, I think that, you know, it's in the heart of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Yeah, on the way to the Musée d'Orsay. Gorgeous, gorgeous decor. Right. Uh, interesting Parisian crowd. Oh, yeah. Um, they're friendlier than they were. They used to be... Oh, they used to snarl at me. Oh, they were mean to everybody, yeah. but now that's stopped. And yeah. the food is pretty good. So, you know, I have it's to good, tell you, classic we had, we, French food. Now, you're sitting literally elbow to elbow. There's not a lot of space in there. But the history there, you know, it, it's... You remember the Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris, sure. and they talked about in the old, the, the, you know, the golden age. There was never a golden age. You were still sitting there, you know, but it was fun. Oh, it's no brasserie lip is great. I always remember my most famous thing. But if I can just drop an anecdotal coin in the bank at brasserie lip, I ate there by myself once when I first moved to Paris, and it was me. And then there was a uh, much older, very heavily made up lady, and we were in a corner, and there was a, a young couple. And good-looking young couple, and we felt I, I knew and she knew that he was going to propose to her, and he got up and left the table. And the old lady leans over and says to the young woman, "Don't do it. He'd be bad sex." Come on! No, I'm not kidding. And that's I, I roared with laughter. And she said to me, the old lady turns to me and says, "Am I wrong?" And I said, "I I wouldn't know." Um, but that's what brasserie lived well, wait, is you like. Have to, you have to finish the story. He comes back to the he table. He comes back, and and she said, um, "You know what? I think that we should make this an early night. I'm not feeling very well." She really did. <laughs> yes, so, 
I mean, you know, and so then, be careful what your table mates tell you <laughs> exactly. at the brasserie lip. Well, just remember that you know when you're in a restaurant, people speak every known language in the restaurant, and you know it's very likely that you're being eavesdropped on. So you know, good lessons to learn. See now, part of me, it's, this is like one of my pet peeves, right? I always you're gonna you're gonna get angry at me, and, and restaurateurs usually get angry at me. I always make a reservation for three, even if we're two, because mm-hmm. they have, then they have to put us at a table for four, and I'm not stuck in what I call the terrible twos. Mm-hmm. In your situation, you got to hear that conversation because you were at a terrible two. Oh, exactly. No, that that but I, you, that that was a great choice. Where else did you go? Well, right here at the hotel, right, right around the corner, did you? which I did when I was 12 years old with my parents. Mm-hmm. I came back to Cafe de la Paix, where there's always a line, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You got to wait outside for the line. But you know what? I really, I mean, I know it's, a, it's basically for a lot of visitors, but I actually enjoyed it. Gorgeous location. Did you, is the dining room still overlooking the opera there, or is it... Uh well, you see a little bit of the opera, opera but not okay, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, the Grand Hotel is bang in the heart of Paris, across from the Paris Absolutely. Opera House, and it's a fabulous location. It is. And in fact, at any given time during the day outside the Opera House, you got street musicians playing. It's, it's great. Oh, it's pure Paris. It is pure Paris. All right, so enough of my trip down memory lane. Let's go back to your hits for 2022. Well, in Paris, um, you know, there are a lot of fantastic young chefs coming along. There's a really interesting man... Um, named Stefan Manigold, um, and he's a historian in and of himself. He was an orphan. He grew up in a Jewish orphanage in Malouz in eastern France. He became a banker against great odds after having been a carnival barker as a, an adolescent, and then he got interested in food. And now Wait, he's carnival the, barker and banker. I, I see it. Kind of I in the same it. envelope, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, Mr. Manigold now has like six of the best restaurants in Paris, his best young chef, Thomas Meyer, just became an MOF. And an MOF is Meilleur Ouvrier de France. He's a young kid from the uh, the Jura, which is the east and eastern region of France. And he can, I mean, he cooks his heart out in a restaurant called Granite. It's right in the heart of the city. And it's where Daniel Rose, the American chef, who lived in Paris for a long time, who's from Chicago and now cooks in New York, it's in that old space. So it's right in the heart of Paris. But let's go back to your uh, your hit parade for 2022. Sure. So I, I, the last restaurant we mentioned, again, just to repeat it for anyone who didn't hear us. The best meal, we're talking my best meals of the year as somebody who lives to eat. Um, in Paris, there was a bistro in the heart of the city called Granite, a uh, young chef named Thomas Meyer. And you can book online and it's Granite like the like the rock. Okay, I got to ask you a question. Do you really book online? Sure. I hate to. I hate. See, I like to because then there's a trace of something. I, I know, have a but you know, I, I'm not and, a fan know. of like open table, you know, or any of those things because if I can have a conversation with the person on the phone, first of all, they get a chance to know a little bit more about me. I get a little chance to know, and maybe I, I, I get their name and they confirm it, and I have a better table. You know what or I do? I, or I have but a this table. is actually a very interesting subject because what I do is I use the technology, and then a day later I call and I say, you know, hello, I just came through Resi or whatever it might be. I just wanted to make sure that you did actually get this reservation. Oh, and by the way, uh, I don't, I don't want I that. No, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I'd say, you know, I would like, have been to the restaurant before. It's one of my favorite places. It'd be great to have the table between the two windows if possible. And I, we don't want to be under the air conditioner. Thanks very much. And, you know, yada, yada. I follow up on a 
on no, a but, cyber okay, reservation you know what, with a live voice. So basically, you're using the technology, but you're not doing it at the expense of a conversation. No, I follow up with the conversation. Yeah. Then I then we have something to talk about. They've got the name there. They've got my phone number. They know that I have the reservation. And I call up to shine it up, polish the reservation a little bit. That's it. And it really works. Um, well, you mentioned granite. So what... What's, what's their signature dish? What's great about him is that this guy, as I mentioned before, he's from the Jura, which is east of France on the border with Switzerland. And um, French cooking is composed of the country's regional kitchens. We say in the English-speaking world, we say French food. Well, French food is like a mosaic. And there's the food of Alsace. There's the food of the Jura. Normandy, Burgundy, every, one of, every part of France has its own style of cooking. This young guy is proud of where he's from, and he cooks with the food of his own region. And this is great because it's bringing some fresh regional cooking to the heart of Paris. And the Jura is most famous for Conte cheese and a great liqueur called, um, I actually should have had a sip of it before I came to see you. Um, <laughs> they, make a, they make a whole lot of, like in the monasteries, they make all sorts of chartreux. Um, so cheese, chartreux, wild mushrooms, game, um, and, you know, he does crazy stuff. I mean, he'll make an infusion of pine needles, which sounds like nuts, but put that on some, on some steamed fish and it's delicious. You know, I tried it myself, actually. Uh, so that, again, is Restaurant Granite with, with Tom Meyer. Uh, highly recommended. And then some of the, the old grand doms have come back. Uh, Yannick Alino, who's a three Michelin star chef at the, his own restaurant, uh, Yannick Alino just took over Prunier, which is one of the most famous seafood houses in Paris, wrote up a new menu for them, and boy, is it great. And I know you like to go to your favorite place, uh, Hide. Mahid, right? yeah. And um, go there next time, go to Hide, but then also go back to Prunier. And if you, well, go back to Prunier. We'll talk. And, um, <laughs> but it's so beautiful, Peter. And it's, I mean, it's, and it was built in 1924. It's all Art Deco mosaics. It specializes in seafood, caviar. You know, it's still the festive time of the year. The holidays are behind us now. But hey, look, it's winter. A little gloomy. Caviar helps. Oysters help. Smoked salmon is always good. Um, this is a gorgeous I'll landmark. I'll say yes to all three. Right, me too, always. Um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But, um, uh, Prunier was fantastic. Um, jumping out of Paris, the, the single best meal I had in France last year was outside of Bordeaux in the Sauternes wine country. Uh, there's a young chef who I think is going to be the next great chef of France, uh, like at the level of Joël Robuchon or Alain Ducasse or someone like that. He's a young chef named Jérôme Schilling. He's from Alsace. He's cooking at a restaurant called Restaurant Lalique uh, and it's at a wine chateau called the Chateau La Forie Perigree, which is a, one of the original Sauterne uh, Premier Cru f- things. Beautiful, beautiful place in the countryside outside. And the, he had one of the most complicated things I've ever heard of for a chef. When they hired him, the guy who you know hired him said, I want you to theme your cooking around Sauterne wine. Well, Sauterne wine, as you and I both know, it's usually something you might have it with foie gras, or you might have it at the end of the meal. What I wanted to ask you, Alexander, is you know we've gone sort of like this full circle with restaurants and hotels. Forty years ago, a restaurant and a hotel was an afterthought. It was where you ate as a last resort. Uh, not a very imaginative menu. Sure. Not a very creative chef. And then 
we started seeing a huge change where celebrity chefs that were true celebrities and with portfolio mm-hmm. coming into hotels, Alain Ducasse is one of them, of course. and Jean George and all of those chefs coming in and making those hotels destinations purely because of the restaurants. Are we still at that point? Well, that's a, that's a great question. The good news is, is that there's almost no corner of France where you don't eat well. These days, um, another day, the best new hotel restaurant in, in France is actually, I think, down in the Riviera. The Mayborn Riviera is a new hotel just outside of Mon- Monte Carlo. The chef is uh, Mauro Colagreco, an Argentine guy who's lived in France for 35 years. And his restaurant, which is called Cito, which is the Greek god of the sea, I think, is a seafood restaurant. And it's a new way of thinking about fish where there's no waste. Um, it's all Mediterranean fish. It's called, so they're cooking the entire fish. Everything is, even the scales, the whole kit. And caboodle. The views are, it's like a crow's nest overlooking the med. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and it is a destination. It's expensive, but good fish, fresh fish, real fish, wild fish, as opposed to farm fish, is you, really expensive. How do you know what you're ordering? How do I know what I'm ordering in terms of the quality of the fish? Yeah, they, they, you know, it says salmon on the menu. It doesn't say wild or you know, fresh if, caught. If it doesn't say wild, I ask. And you think they're going to tell you the truth? You know what? At a, at a good restaurant, they should. And I, in France, they do. It's the law, and they're pretty. They're pretty fierce about it. I mean, the French food inspectors will come in, and read a menu, and then take a sample of whatever it is and test it. And if you've said that this is wild salmon, and you're charging eighty euros for it, and they go back and find out that it's farmed, you'll get a huge fine, and you'll also get, you know, a shout out, bad shout out in the newspaper. Um, this is serious business here. I mean, the French, as you know, take their food really seriously. And not all farmed fish is bad, um, but they're different levels of quality. And right. so if you want to eat farmed fish, I say only organic. Because what's the fish when it's farmed? It's like any other animal. It's what it's fed. Uh, in the sea, they're eating whatever they want to. But uh, this place... Uh, Cito, the whole idea is only wild fish, and wild fish is electric because unfortunately not a lot of it left. But, but that restaurant is what made that hotel uh, really jump out of the water, if you will. So yes, uh, a really great restaurant is still an absolutely essential piece of kit for a successful hotel in France. And in Paris, at the one hotel, the Prince de Gaulle, they used to have, I used to go there all the time because they had the best lobster sandwich in town. That was a damn good lobster sandwich. It's not on the menu anymore. I know. But, but uh, Gerald Krishak, who's the general manager, brought in this amazing Asian restaurant. Unbelievable. It's a Korean American. It's a Korean, yes, yes. Korean American in Paris. Yeah. Well worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that recommendation. See, aren't you glad you came on? I, I am very glad. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you have your favorites, like I said earlier, you know, Brasserie Lip or, you know, and you always go back to them. I think, you know, I think I like, as you said earlier, and I agree with you, after the lockdowns in France, when we were, you know, we were cut off from restaurant going for a long time. The pleasure of going back to a place that you've been, it's, you know, it's part of your life. It's like the scenery of your own life. You go back, finally you can go back there again. So many memories attached. When I went the other night when I was in Paris, uh, I got stuck, you know, the dentist kept me waiting for four hours. I got out of there. I'd missed the, the theater. I'd missed the dinner with friends. I went into Au Pied de Cochon, another uh, brasserie in the heart of the city, because I was hungry. It was, you know, 11.30 at night. I had a ball. I had a ball because it's like it was like walking into a party and being welcomed by strangers. You know, that's what brasseries well, are all about. Well, plus you knew what to order. Sorry? I did know what to order. And what did you order? I had onion soup. 
And then now, I what, what kind of onion soup? Francais, monsieur. <laughs> you know, heavy the, on the and, cheese? Heavy on the cheese. A whole shower cap of melted cheese on top of the soup. You see, I order the onion soup just for the cheese. That's what everyone does. I mean, the soup is neither here nor there. It's an excuse to eat melted <laughs> cheese. Um, and then steak tartare because it's really good, and I love that. And, and Americans get squeamish about eating raw meat in restaurants and stuff. In France, I never give it a second no. thought. I mean, at the Plaza Athenay, at the restaurant upstairs... They do it at the table. Oh, God, is it good. Unbelievable. And I'm, I remember it because I haven't had meat in 14 years. But when I did, wow. That was it. That yeah, was it. Really, really, really yeah. good. Um, but, you know, it's I don't know where you're planning to be traveling this year, Peter, but there are a couple places. The other pl- places where I ate incredibly well last year, I spent a lot of time in Spain. There's a restaurant down near uh, Seville, or actually near Cadiz in the very south of Spain on the Atlantic coast called Aponiente, and the chef, uh, Michelin three-star restaurant, um, Angel uh, Leon, he's also seafood, and it's one of the most astonishing places I've ever been because he does trompe l'oeil cooking. He'll make something like a pâté de la mer. I mean, he uses everything. The dessert is made out of fish skin, which sounds scary, but it was delicious. Um, so don't miss that one if you're in Spain. My thanks to Alexander. And before you rent your next car, hear my conversation with Stephen Schur, the CEO of Hertz. Schur had to steer the company through the pandemic and financial peril, and understanding the changing demands and expectations of his customers in a world where fossil fuel vehicles are dinosaurs. Also, he's had some serious consumer and legal issues to contend with. Stephen, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Peter. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So I go back, I'm going to date myself, to one of the more innovative commercials I ever saw. And then, of course, I had to learn how they shot it, which predates you and predates me, so you're off the hook on this one. It was, let Hertz put you in the driver's seat of a guy flying through the air and ending up in like a 59 Chevy. (laughs) And that's my first exposure to seeing Hertz on television and the ease of renting a car. Our very first rental car when I was a kid, my parents... We went on a little family vacation to Florida, and uh, what was it? A 57 Chevy convertible, turquoise, rented from Hertz. I'll never forget it. And ironically, and you and I can talk about this a little bit later, ironically, you, you still are renting classic cars. Um, I don't know if you have a 57 Chevy rolling around, but let me know. Um, no. No. <laughs> well, I'll say, Peter, I, you know, I don't think we have the 57 Chevy much as I think um, it would be quite popular had we held on to what we were renting to you uh, back then. I, I do recall, by the way, seeing some of the print advertising and the videos. It was in and around the 1964 World's Fair in New York City. Correct. And the image, and the image that you're, you're describing, I, I recall, which was um, a couple flying through the air, landing in a convertible car and moving on. And it, would, it captured people's imagination then. And I'd say... You know, the mode of getting you and your listeners into a Hertz rental car will be a little different than flying through the air, but we'd like to make it as easy and as pleasurable as we can. And we're doing kind of a lot of interesting things you and I can talk about to help facilitate that. But, um, but, but, uh, Hertz goes back more than a hundred years. And so, uh, there's a lot of history behind the company. Um, and, uh, and I think we're kind of at the cusp of reintroducing the company 
to your listeners and to our customers in ways that I think they'll find exciting. Well, let's go back uh, maybe three years to the to the height of the pandemic. Um, I remember people sending me photographs. And by the way, this is not particular to Hertz. It was all rental car companies where you saw photographs of entire fleets of cars parked uh, in in uh, in football stadiums or in vast parking lots. And uh, it was quite a, a disturbing sight because I never saw that many SUVs in Hawaii. Uh, that was the one I saw that I saw in Maui. And then during the pandemic, of course, you know, with nobody going anywhere, everybody in lockdown, a lot of rental car companies sold a lot of their fleet. And then when travel came roaring back, you had a supply issue, not just because you didn't have the cars, but because the manufacturers with a, with a chip shortage were having difficulty delivering your orders. Um, I guess the real question is, how long did it take you to finally get back on track to the numbers you needed? Well, you describe it right. Um, I've obviously been in my seat uh, since March and and uh, spent the beginning part of COVID in my in my prior job uh, on Wall Street. But I would say that um, circumstances were exactly as you described. We are now, though, back in an interesting place where I would say leisure travel is at or better than where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, corporate travel is now trending call it 80 to 90% of where it was pre-pandemic with, with certain changes in the way in which people travel for business that we can get onto. And then inbound travel. So this is where Europeans or South Americans or, or travel travelers out of Asia come to the United States. That has been the laggard, um, mostly by dint of rules that have now been all sort of put to the side in terms of entry around COVID. And that's back now, I would say to about 75% of where we were. And so, Travel's coming back. It, it is, uh, as I say, at or near or in some sense better levels than where it was pre-pandemic, but it is different in many respects. And obviously, we, like others in the rental car industry, are not in nearly as dire a position from a fleet point of view as we had been. But we're certainly not back to where production of new cars by the auto manufacturers is as free-flowing uh, as it had been. And as a consequence, you know, we've had to play... Uh, more of a role as a buyer in the used car market where we will buy low mileage, good condition cars so as to maintain an adequate level of fleet and meet what was a resurging, uh, you know, demand on the part of our customer base. I, I remember the days in Hawaii uh, where uh, the rental car rates, when people did start coming back, were so crazy. Uh, again, not just Hertz, but across the board, that you know, companies are getting eight hundred to a thousand dollars a week for a car, and I had friends in Hawaii who were seriously contemplating just renting their own cars out <laughs> because they. No, could- I mean you know you're right. I mean the crazy thing that was going on in Hawaii, much as I I didn't see it personally but heard it, was that there were people who were contemplating renting box trucks, you know, to sort of move around the island because the car fleet had been exhausted. And by the way, demand this Christmas time in Hawaii remains off the charts and, you know, to the point that we're doing everything we can and we're probably renting, you know, well above 95% of our fleet uh, in Hawaii. And so the demand there, like in other vacation spots is there, but, you know, but, but pricing got crazy. Fleet control got, got really near and dear in Hawaii. And as I said, people sort of were doing all sorts of, you know, out of the ordinary things, you know, to, uh, to rent a car. 
So what you're telling me, Stephen, is if I loaned you my car, you'd rent it out for me, huh? <laughs> I probably could rent your car out, Peter, and uh, and and yield a and yield a handsome return over over the Christmas holiday to you for sure. But you know, um, just interesting things are playing out. You know, uh, in and around travel, and you know, we can get into as much or as little of this as you can. And I'm sure your listeners, you know, are parties to some of this. But like, we're seeing changing dynamics in the way in which people travel for business. You know, they will travel for meetings. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then keep and the car. Pre-pandemic, yeah, they will stay Friday to wherever they are. I mean, I use this example often, but you know, imagine you have a lawyer from New York who travels to Los Angeles for meetings Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and he or she would ordinarily be on a red eye Thursday night, back heading to New York and be in the office bright and early. And now there's leave to work remotely on that Friday, and then spend Saturday and Sunday. And so for us, you know, our corporate rentals are renting on a duration basis, 1.6 days longer than wow. they did pre-pandemic. People have changed their travel patterns. Uh, I, I hate to use this word because it sounds ucky, but you know, leisure, you know, p- people yes. combining business with leisure and then extending their trips. Yes. I mean, that, that, that is what's going on. I mean, you know, I would say that <clears throat> it's not so much blurred as much as they are combining, in my view, you know, two activities, right? They're finding themselves in a location by virtue of business and they're extending or preceding that business travel with leisure travel. And and that has made for, I think, really positive dynamics for us in the rental car space, equally the hotels um, who are themselves experiencing kind of a similar phenomenon. And then I would say that equally on the leisure side, and this is not so much the combination of business and leisure in that we're seeing more and more families uh, take extended vacations around, you know, what I would call secondary holidays. So think of everybody goes away Christmas or they'll travel Easter, but now they're extending for a week's vacation around Veterans Day or Columbus Day or the like. Again, longer vacations built around three-day weekends, again, because it's more acceptable for, you know, the father or the mother uh, with the children to work remotely not as a permanent sort of relocation, but it's just a more acceptable proposition and therefore the ability, you know, to go on that family vacation for an extended week as opposed to the weekend, you know, plays itself out and becomes more practical. I mean, way before people were working remotely, I remember my parents when I was growing up would cut a deal with my teachers for the famous extra credit assignment so they could take me out of Mm -hmm. school for a week. And you know what? It was the best scam going. (laughs) That's it. That's it. And, and look, you know, it, positive side to that of course is that it builds the kind of memories that you described at the uh, at the start of this conversation which is you know these are these are trips that children will remember we want to be a part of that experience it matters the kind of car they're sitting in and you know for a while people were speculating whether with the advent of rideshare be it uber or or the like you know would people want to still rent a car when they're in vacation places like Disney World or Disneyland or the like. And the truth is they are. Um, the mobility it provides them, the flexibility it provides them at an affordable cost, even with rates higher now than they were by virtue of scarcity of cars, is nonetheless part and parcel of the experience that I think your listeners and travelers broadly are enjoying. Let me ask you this question, because I go back to the days of trying to figure out what was the most popular car in America 
and you may remember this predates your your uh, stint at Hertz, but for years and years and years, Ford's advertising was that Taurus was the most popular car in America, and I couldn't figure it out. And then it finally dawned on me, they they were judging uh, Taurus based on fleet sales to rental car companies. And that's what made right. Taurus the most popular car. So I got to ask this question, Stephen. What's the most popular car at Hertz? Well, I would say that for families, you know, we find people still with a real uh, preference for minivans or SUVs. Um, and and that's become and still remains a very popular car, very practical, you know, for a big family that's on the road. Um, we equally find uh, people now uh, taking up with, you know, what I would describe as some of the quintessential American muscle cars. So we have Shelby's on the road and Mustangs and so forth, where, you know, a younger demographic of customer, you know, wants to get out in the open road and where the weather is permitting, take the hood down and enjoy a convertible. And then I'd equally say that, and this is all very new and, 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 uh, and exciting, which is electric vehicles. And so Hertz has the largest electric fleet uh, in the rental car space, and we're seeing the take up among those rental cars to be enormously popular, really across all customer channels. So we're seeing um, leisure customers who want to get into a Tesla or a Polestar, or soon in some of the GM fleet that we'll take, we'll be taking. And we bought a hundred thousand Teslas and sixty-five thousand Polestars. And we'll soon take delivery or begin to on one hundred and seventy-five thousand General Motors electric vehicles. So we'll wow. offer our customers choice. And that's proving to be really interesting. And, and oh, by the way, corporates are compelling their employees to get in. We rent those cars to Uber drivers. Um, but equally, there's no better way to test drive a car that's as different as is an electric vehicle than to rent one. And I agree. Mary Barra over, yeah, Mary Barra GM said, you know, customers that rent a car, an electric vehicle from Hertz are twice as likely to buy it. And so that just sets up as a really interesting experience. Exactly. So let's shift gears for a second and talk about a story that I've been reporting now for almost a year. Um, it, it may have even predated your arrival at, at Hertz, but I know you tried to fix it. Um, and it was, this, it was the story that culminated recently, right before the end of the year, in a, in a large settlement that Hertz made with about 350 claimants about people. And this goes back, you know, to the crazy pandemic days where people would rent a car and the contract may be called for a week, but then they wanted to keep it longer and they did. And then they returned the car maybe a week or two later. During that time, uh, the Hertz franchise or the Hertz original location where the car was supposed to be returned reported the car is stolen. And then someone else came and rented the car. With, and by the way, that car was paid for. And the second person came to rent the car, but the police report hadn't been withdrawn. And the next thing you know, as you know, Stephen, people got pulled over, arrested, in some cases even went to jail. Um, have you finally fixed that? Yes. I mean, we, we, we have done a number of different things. Um, first of all, we, as you, as you referenced, we settled uh, before the new year uh, with a vast majority, in fact, more than 97%, of the plaintiffs that uh, had claims against us. And, uh, you know, I had said from the day I started at this company that we would do right uh, by our customers and we would be a, co a company that was defined as having put its customers first. And, you know, in this context, you know, while not, not having done wrong with everyone, there were clearly cases where we did not do right. 
and it was our obligation to do right by them. And I think by this settlement, we have done that, you know, and, and have closed a chapter that's not one that I think we're particularly proud of. Now, all of this preceded um, the bankruptcy and certainly my arrival, but nonetheless, it was for me as the chief executive officer to deal with this. And I think we've now dealt with it in the way that we had you know, said from my start that we would. Perhaps even more importantly to customers who are listening here and to give people every sense of assurance, we've dramatically changed our policies in the way in which we deal with automobiles that are either missing or stolen. By the way, I should also say that we now have telematics, which is, you know, equipment in the car that helps us better locate where cars are. So even the need to file a theft report, you know, is not going to be there. Now, we won't always be perfect. We rent cars. We, we engage in 150 million rental days a year, and not every one of them is going to be a perfect experience. But I think the experience that people had, unfortunately, in this circumstance is one that we have now, you know, dealt with. Um, we've made appropriate payments to people that were where we had wronged. And I think we now move forward with a much better set of policies that, you know, will put people comfortably in an automobile without the, the risk that something untoward will come of them, you know, by virtue of stolen cars or the like. And so I, I feel very comfortable with where we are, with what we did, how we rectified this situation. Uh, and again, this will be, you know, a defining moment in, in ensuring that this is a system will always work hard to do right by them. And Stephen, that was a, a relatively large settlement of about $168 million. It's, it sent a message to everybody. I guess the question I have to ask you is, have you worked now with your franchises and your retail locations to make sure that they understand the consequences of filing those reports without following up to make sure the car has been returned? Oh, well, there's no question that the entirety of organization, given the enormity of what it, what it was that we paid to settle, you know, these cases is kind of well aware of what our expectations are of them in terms of their engagement with customers. And I would say, you know, there's no Hertz employee that I know. And I've been around now to sort of many of the airports and field operations. These are people that have worked for Hertz for 20, 30, and in some cases more than 40 years. And they, they care very deeply about our customer set. And now from the center, we've put policies in place, you know, so as to, you know, replate uh, the license plates on automobiles that we, that we have on cars that we have reclaimed that were otherwise thought to be stolen all the way to the levels of approval that are required before theft reports are started. So we're not relying though we could on everybody's sort of good intention, much as they have it. We're equally relying on having put in place policies that just make sure things happen the right way. My thanks to Stephen, to Alexander Lebrano, and to Elaine Chilino. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, the solution is easy. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. 
before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.